without further ado, um, if you guys could open up your Bibles if you have them. We are going to look at one verse this morning from Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 verse 7. Ephesians 1 verse 7. And we'll, we'll push a little bit into 8, the first phrase. Um, last week for our Communion Sunday, we looked at the, the picture in Colossians 3. And we're talking Ephesians 1 today, but in Colossians 3 of God nailing our debts to the cross. And I don't know if you guys remembered, but there were two ways that not just did he birth it in my heart, but I felt like the Lord even, I think through some subtle, very low-key signs and wonders, God confirmed that he he wanted that word spoken to us. Um, Rob's idea to bring It Is Well, which had the lyric that matched that verse, and it's the only lyric in all of our songs to match that verse without coordinating any of it to me. Um, And and then secondly, during the break, uh, Josh's um, song list played the song, again, of him nailing the debt of our sins to the tree, which is, uh, it was just amazing to me. But it, I, I don't, I want you guys to, you know, not worry. Like, I don't, I don't look for signs typically, you know, during the week of what God wants me to do. But this week as I prepared and we thought about going back to our, our devoted series, I, I had a sense that that perhaps it was, you know, in Acts it says it seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit to do this thing. I, I had a sense that it seemed good to my heart and perhaps to the Holy Spirit to pause here and, and just try to explore maybe more deeply this theme of the very foundation of our life with Christ, uh, the forgiveness and the freedom we have with him. And so we're going to come back to this theme this morning. And, I, and for, for many of you guys, it's going to be very basic But I'm convinced after saturating myself in it, convinced from my own life experience, but also convinced from the testimony, more importantly, of the Word of God, that that if we don't hold on to this, we lose everything else. If we don't hold on to what we're going to talk about today, we lose everything else. And that if we hold on to what we're going to talk about today, everything else is supported. Spiritual gifts we can talk about, we should. We should explore how we treat each other, our marriages, our our waiting and singleness, our recovering from loss. We should do all that. But all that needs to be set on a foundation. And that foundation is Jesus Christ crucified for our sins. And I know that you you hear this so often that it, it just, it washes over you sometimes like a wave, like it does to me. Like, I know that, I know that. That's not ever God's heart for this truth. And, and, and he understands that it washes over. He understands how we're made. He understands our, our, our continued battle with fallenness. Um, but I think that he is pleased when, through the Holy Spirit, blowing on the word of his grace, we can be refreshed in this again. We can see how important it is, and we can find ballast for our souls, and that everything else that we need to put on top of this can be secured by this. Our marriages, our job disappointments, our hopes, our dreams in this life, they can all be supported by this foundation. And and I just think it's so easy for us to miss this. It's so easy for us to presume upon it in our hearts and our lives that, that we are holding on to Jesus Christ as our greatest hope. I mean, I, I had another experience with it all morning long. You know, I, I can just feel my heart's disappointment and just disappointing you guys with tech issues and, and, and you know, and, and just finding my soul tempted um, by what I should have done and didn't do and what I felt like I tried to do but couldn't do and weakness and sins, you know, brewing in my heart. And I just, it's so funny because I feel like it's almost like God's giving me a personal illustration of just saying, Albert, what are you standing on? (laughs) Like, when things go wrong, like, what are you standing on? Stand on me. Stand on me. And that is just me this morning. But I, I don't think I'm alone. That when life falls apart, when life looks amazing, the question needs to be asked again and again and again, what am I standing on? What's my hope? What's my center? What's the foundation every day of my life? Because it's supposed to be what we're going to talk about today. So, without further ado, the verse this morning that we're going to try to search out through the power of the Holy Spirit and his help in the word of God is this. First, Ephesians 1, 7 and the first phrase in 8. In him, that is in Christ Jesus, 
we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. Please pray with me. Lord, may you be seen and exalted in the person of your son this morning. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to him, to his cross I cling. And so do we all, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to go through this passage almost phrase by phrase, starting with the very first volley here. In him we have redemption. In him it says, Paul tells us right away that we have something, but the something that we have, we have in him. This in him means that Paul is talking to believers in Jesus Christ. People who have affirmed in their heart that Jesus is the Son of God. People who are depending on him, even if imperfectly, to be their Savior from their sins and who affirm him as Lord, seeking even imperfectly to follow him. These are the people in him. Paul uses this phrase a lot, in him, in Christ. It's a huge theological freight train that carries all kinds of stuff that I, I won't go into today. But just briefly, when Paul says, in him, and we have these things in him, it's not like you are in him, like you're in Chicago. It's not a physical location. He's talking about the spiritual dimension. It, it might be easier to think of it in terms of you are not in Chicago, but you are in a marriage. You are in a relationship. It's, it's a spirit state, a metaphysical sort of dimension, if you will. And it means that all the blessings of our husband redeemer to whom we are in belong to us because we were in, we are united with our husband redeemer, Jesus Christ. And these blessings are innumerable, innumerable adoption, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the promise of future resurrection. But today I want to focus on the foundation that Paul elucidates here, right here in verse 7. We have, he says, redemption. This is a really important word in Scripture. And along with words like redeemer or ransomed, it's, it's a word group that we can assume we know too quickly and really lose the nourishment that God intends for us to receive from it. We've looked at a few of those words in the last month, right? Like glory and holy. This is right up there with them in importance and with assumption. That It's just like, okay, redeemed, yay. I go to redeemer. You know, we need to stop and ask, what does this word mean? The word relates to a payment being offered to secure a benefit. It's a classic old word, marketplace word, accounting word. It involved buying something or someone that had otherwise been lost to you. Some of you might remember a story about Boaz. Boaz was David's forefather, and he redeemed land that belonged to a woman, a woman's husband. Her name was Ruth, and he died, and Boaz brought, bought this land in a legally bind, binding contract and in, in, and in that purchase, he also received Ruth and was able to make Ruth his wife through that purchase price, that redemption price. He, the land became his, and Ruth became his when he paid the redemption. He paid the price. In this case, it was actual money. And so in ancient times, a family mem member might be able to pay a redemption price in order to buy the freedom of an enslaved person they cared about. You would have a family member who was an uh, indentured servant. It, they, were, they were in permanent custody and property of another person or family, and you could buy their freedom with money. And so David spiritualizes this in 2 Samuel 7, 23. He's praying to God in praise, and he says, 
Who is like your people, Israel? Because of you. He says, you came to one nation on earth to redeem a people for yourself. To make a name for yourself and to perform for them great and awesome acts. Driving out nations and their gods before your people you redeemed for yourself from Egypt. Israel's enslaved in Egypt, and God is pictured as one coming to set her free through the redemption price. Of course, God did not pay money for Israel, but he exerted his power to claim them from Egypt. In this sense, he redeemed her from slavery. He freed her from slavery, and she became his. And so God is said to redeem us. He, in a real sense, purchased us from something, and we became his. And what did he redeem us from? We, we know the answer, but let's slow down and, and look at the answer closely. Paul says he redeemed us through his blood. And this is telling us something about what he redeemed us from. You weren't purchased with money. You were purchased with blood. You were purchased with blood. Peter says it this way, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Jesus himself said in Mark 10:45, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom, as a redemption price for many. We are redeemed by blood, the blood of a sacrificed life. The price for your redemption, for your freedom, is the life of another, poured out to death for you, expressed in his blood shed. For centuries, God tried to drill this idea that a blood sacrifice pointing to the life given over to death for us was necessary to forgive our sins. And in the Old Testament for centuries, the Jewish people had a religious system at the center of which was blood sacrifices offered. The blood of animal sacrifices was the price, so to speak, for the continued blessing and the continued forgiveness of Yahweh over Israel. This was most climactically expressed once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, when a high priest, one priest in all of the nation, the greatest priest, would slay a calf and he would pour its blood at the very center of the temple over the Ark of the Covenant, the same Ark of the Covenant that you'd see, the golden box in Raiders of the Lost Ark. That was a real thing. The Ten Commandments were in it. The Ten Commandments represented the agreement between God and his people. This is my law. You will keep it and you will be my God. And when they didn't, the blood of the sacrifice was poured over the broken law. And here, the high priest, through the pouring out of this blood, would make atonement symbolically for the sins of the nation. So Paul explains here the first and most foundational effect of our redemption. He says, we have redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses. There, there is more to redemption than forgiveness. We talked about a few things, adoption, the indwelling Holy Spirit, becoming God's children. But forgiveness is the dam that must burst if the river of all these other glorious blessings are going to pour into our lives like a flood. Forgiveness is the dam that must burst if all the blessings of God are going to pour into our lives. Forgiveness must be secured before anything else can come to us. That's what all the people that you see who don't know Jesus Christ are walking around without. And I'm not saying that to, to guilt you today or to guilt myself, but just to say this is a real thing. They need forgiveness for the dam of all of the blessings of God to flow into their lives. 
And that's what you and I need. And that's what we have in Christ. Think about it. What, what would it benefit us to have the indwelling Holy Spirit come into our lives and to be adopted by God but not have forgiveness? I mean, it doesn't make sense, but just think about it. To, to, to experience God's presence without his forgiveness? You know what that's like right now in your functional emotions in some small way. You, you feel his displeasure. You feel a sense of guilt. You feel a sense of condemnation. And that's not, for, for you in Christ, that's not even real. But, but to actually walk around with the Holy Spirit in your being and not have God's forgiveness, it would be like setting, being set free from prison, you know, only to be followed by a, a drone that would strike you down wherever you go. It doesn't make sense, of course, but without forgiveness, we can't live with the Holy Spirit. Because he's just a threat. He's angry with us. We're separated from him in our relational life. God is a God of justice. Forgiveness must come from a price being paid. God doesn't uphold justice if he doesn't pay for our sins. If he doesn't uphold justice, he destroys his glory as a just God. And he forever desecrates himself. He abominates himself if he doesn't uphold justice. Our sin, your sin, it must be punished if God is to be preserved as a just God. And the penalty for our sin is the death of the sinner expressed in the shedding of blood. Hebrews 9 tells us, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. And the shedding of blood points to a forfeited life because of its rebellion against its creator. And so, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, was slain. His blood was shed so that you and I could have our redemption price paid, resulting in full forgiveness. Paul equates the two here. Do you notice this? He says, in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. It's like, ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States, George W. Bush, you know, or the, the current and still heavyweight champion of the world, Evander Holyfield. He's saying, we have redemption. Here's what it is, the forgiveness of our sins. It's so foundational. It's so central that though there are other things in redemption, Paul in this point acts as if there's nothing else. And I want to talk about this beautiful word here that you might breeze by, but it's it's the most beautiful word because of how it functions in, in this whole passage. It's one word. Can you guess what the word is? It's not forgiveness. It's not redemption. It's not even blood. And I don't want to get into a word fight, but I think it's the word have. Have. He says we have redemption. The forgiveness of our sins. Do you see that? Redemption consists of something. It's forgiveness of our sins through the blood of Christ. And Paul says we have it. He doesn't say we had it in the past, but not now. He doesn't say we hope to have it. He doesn't even say we will have it. He says we have it. And that means everything, brothers and sisters. The verb tense means everything. It is the difference between fear and joy. It is the difference between a hopeful hope, maybe, maybe hope, and a rest. It is the difference between a heavy burden and a light yoke. It is the difference between sullenness and drudgery and foreboding and rest for your soul. We have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. 
that verb tense is explicit, it's precise, and it's crucial. In the Greek, it simply means we have and are still having. We have and are still having redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Brothers and sisters, listen, in in a very real and reliable, utterly freeing, joy-giving way, though, though you will battle with sin for the rest of your life, in Christ Jesus, you have and continue to have and forever will have redemption, the forgiveness of your sins. It's one thing to look back at your your conversion and your pre-conversion days and say, like I might say, I was forgiven in 1992. I remember my life before it was was full of awful darkness and I was forgiven of all of that old life. Or to say, man, one day I will stand before God. I will finally be free of this battle with sin and I will finally feel forgiven. It's, It's another thing entirely to look at your past transgressions to consider your present struggles to recognize the surety of your future failures and to say with pride in your God I have redemption the forgiveness of my sins I failed terribly yesterday. I'm struggling today. I will fall down again tomorrow. And yet I have redemption. And I still have it. The forgiveness of my sins. And you should say that. Again, without wanting to invite any license for transgressions or to make light of sin, I I want to say that you can... I want to say this carefully, but truly, you cannot honor the blood of Jesus Christ and the glory of God who gave his only son in bloody sacrifice and physical and spiritual agony for your sins. If you do not agree with God on this matter, you have redemption, the forgiveness of your sins. And it can feel so counterintuitive. It can feel like you're not being polite to God if you don't struggle with condemnation, if you don't whip yourself mentally and emotionally. If you don't carry around at least low-grade guilt with you, it can feel like you're not honoring God as you should. But the sad thing is we do just the opposite when we don't rest in the sufficiency of what his son has done. I know you're all asking questions. What about my sin? What about my struggles today? We'll we'll, we'll talk more about that. You can rest assured that I'm not saying, go and do whatever you want. It's all good. Don't worry. It won't affect your, your life in any way. I'm not saying that. But you have to get this straight. I have to get this straight. I have to fight to keep getting this straight. Or else my battle will be very counterproductive and eventually despairing. Jesus' blood was so precious And his life was so worthy, a payment, that you can look at sin in the face and say, though you still grab at me as if you were alive and as if you had power and dominion over me, though you still fool me and you still seduce me too often and to my sorrow, you are a conquered foe. You are a liar and you are damned and you are dead. In terms of your ability to kill me, you're dead because you are all paid for and you're finished. This is what Hebrews 10 works so hard to tell us. Right in the middle of that chapter, the author says in Hebrews 10, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Thinking about the Old Testament system, he, he looks at the futility of these priests offering animals every week and year, and he says, day after day, every priest 
stands at the time. He says stands because it was probably still going on. He says every day, these Jewish priests, they stand and they perform their religious duties again and again. They offer the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. That's why they have to be offered again and again and again and again. Because they never really work before God. They're not what's going to do it for God. But when this high priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down because he was done for all time. One sacrifice for sins. And it says, 14, verse 14, for by one sacrifice, I mean, he is just pounding this into the ground, for by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Well, I'm not perfect now. If you think of your life like your experiences, yes, you're not perfect now. But if you think of your life from God's perspective as a sheet of debts owed to justice, And that sheet defines, brothers and sisters, make no mistake, the holy God of the universe. That sheet defines your destiny. Reconciled to him in joy eternally or separated from him in shame eternally. And according to him, he says, it is all paid. It's perfect. And then he goes on. He explains the forgiveness as finalized by Christ's death. He says it this way. Where these sins have been forgiven, verse 18, this is Hebrews 10. You don't have to follow. You can just listen. He says, where these have been forgiven, sacrifice is no longer necessary. Another way to put this, just try to listen to his logic here. Because Jesus' sacrifice was so sufficient for all of your sins for all time, there's no more sacrifice necessary. Do you see the logic? If God had not covered all of your sins in Christ, there would be a need for more blood and more death to appease God. In other words, Christ would not be enough. Christ would be insufficient. But since that cannot be possible, since the blood of the sinless Son of God is so worthy that all our sins are paid for and there is no longer any need of sacrifice, therefore, All our sins, that means all our sins are forgiven. Again, it's hard for us to conceive of this because we live in time. We can feel forgiven from past sins today, and then, but we cannot conceive of of feeling forgiven for future sins. We haven't even committed them yet. When we have them and struggle with them, then we'll know what God did with them. No, that's not at all what the Hebrews author is saying. That's the opposite of what he's saying. God has done away with it. Listen, how many sins had you committed when Jesus Christ died on Calvary? Right? None. If Jesus can forgive your past sins, but it's probably easier for you guys to conceive of, well, he forgave my past sins. Why is that any easier? (laughs) He he died 2,000 years ago. If he can forgive your past sins from 2,000 years ago, can he not have already forgiven your future sins? When you buy a home, you might feel great, right? You buy a home, you close the sale. If any of you bought a home, it's, it's a pretty amazing experience. And not all of us get to experience it, but I never could have imagined I would have experienced buying a home. But I, I got to do it, I felt great. But, but then you face all kinds of expenses immediately and for the rest of your life. You just bought a money pit. You just bought a very expensive piece of property that will hang around your neck like a lead anvil forever, at least for 30 years. Let, let's say you buy a new home for, what in Frederick, $300,000. It's a pretty... You know, that's a lot of money for us, but in Frederick, it's actually not that big a deal. That's how awful it is. We didn't pay that much for our home. I will get into it, but, but $300,000. I just want to give you a, a kind of a, 
not impossible to think about in terms of home prices, but, but, but a serious piece of money. $300,000. You got a loan. You bought it. You love it. It's all you could ever hope for. Frederick, Maryland, you know, you, you, you can be happy about it now. You, you got a good loan at a decent rate. Interest rates are good right now. And, and your first night in the house is a dream come true. But as the days pass, you start to wonder, what about the future? You know, you, you start to think you're going to have many expenses. You live in it long enough and you'll need a new roof, a new AC unit. Oh, those are so deceptively awful, the AC units. They're just thousands of dollars for air conditioning units. A new furnace, thousands of dollars for a new furnace. Appliances will break. Refrigerators, washers, dryers, dishwashers, stoves. We've already had to cycle through several of those in the dec decade we've lived in our house. Thousands of dollars, all this stuff. You're going to need them, new ones. That's not to mention the trees that grow next to your house that grow too big and you don't watch it. Hundreds, if not thousands of dollars to take care of all the landscaping work. If you live in a low-lying area, who knows about flooding? There's a lot of flooding stuff in Frederick. Siding may crack, storm damage. This is, this is to say nothing about the mortgage payments you have to make every month. What if you lose your job or you have to find a new one? And now you've got to get this kind of job because you have this kind of mortgage, you know? It's a lot to worry about. But let's say your great uncle was a guy named Bill Gates. And he really cared about you. And he said, I, I don't want you to have to fear you're ever going to lose this house. I, I want you to rest here. Yes, you will have troubles. Things will break down. They'll need replacing. This is normal in this world. But I want you to enjoy this house. I don't want you living in crippling fear every day. So I'll tell you what, today I'm going to pay off your full mortgage. It's gone. And then on top of that, I'm going to set up a savings account for you to draw on anytime you need to, only for this home, for this $300,000 home. It will be for this house and all its needs so you can rest in your home. So to make sure you can rest easy for your $300,000 home, I will set up a savings account of $10 billion for you. That's $10,000 million dollars. If you had a million dollar bill, he puts 10,000 of those bills in a bank account for you. That's what $10 billion is. For any repairs you need for your $300,000 home for the rest of your life. Do you think as concerns that home you could rest easy that night? Do you think you could <laughs> just relax and, and, and not feel the need to worry about being foreclosed on or the refrigerator breaking or money for new carpets? You have 10,000 million dollar bills you can draw on. Paul tells us that God forgave us according to the riches, not of Bill Gates' riches, but his riches, his grace. He says that he lavished forgiveness on you. He's not like, you know, forgiveness here, little forgiveness there. How dare you come in? Okay, I'll forgive you for this one, but not tomorrow. It says he lavished. He lavished it. Lavished it. Out of his, not just out of his heart, out of his riches. What are his riches? What's the most valuable thing in the entire universe? What makes Bill Gates' $10 billion account for you look like bird poop on the hood of your car? What, what, what can be that infinitely glorious and unimaginably worthy? The precious blood of the Son of God was spilled for all of your sins, all of them. The infinitely holy, matchless in value life of God the Son was violently put to death for your many and real and terrible offenses known and unknown against an infinitely holy God. Let's be real here. More than we know, our sin debt is significant. Our, our indifference to God Every day is, is more damnable than we understand. 
Our coldness to his people is more grieving than we understand. Our, our self-righteousness at our spouse, at our kids, at our coworkers, is hypocritical and reprehensible in light of his mercy and how much we need him. Our surrender to lust is shameful impurity. Our unbelieving self-sufficiency, when we overcome it with a sense of superiority, is an insult to his kind heart. Let's just, let's just say it's really bad. We don't know it all. Some of it is not as bad as we think, but mostly I believe the scriptural record bears out it's much worse than we think. Let's admit all that. None of it, none of it can match the priceless worth of the sinless Son of God who bore it all. All of us had gone astray. Each of us had turned to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Colossians 3, or Colossians 2, 13 and 14. He canceled the record of transgressions that was against us with its legal demands. He canceled it, having nailed it to the cross. And, and I want to admit, our sins can wound, disappoint, and grieve the Holy Spirit. It is healthy and good to admit to him when we, he opens our eyes to the fact that we have strayed. This repairs our functional relationship with him. But listen, you have to fight to believe this. Our sins never change our relationship with him. It affects our relationship. It never changes the fact of our relationship with him as his children and we as his, as his children and he is our father. And we don't honor God as much as we, we might think we do. And it, we don't honor God in quiet ways or in loud ways when we say that his sacrifice eh, is not enough. No, no, I, gotta, can't, I can't enter in today. I can't depend on you today. I can't cry out to you today can't look at you today. My sin is too great. We don't honor his sacrifice when we say that maybe my transgressions tomorrow are going to be too mighty for his blood. I mean, I'm okay today, but what am I going to do tomorrow? I won't rest in joy today because tomorrow is coming and I know what I'll do tomorrow. I'll blow it, I'm sure. We don't honor him when we do that stuff. We think we do. It feels like we're being holy. We're telling Jesus it's not enough. You're not enough. He says, stop it. Stop it. Come to me for help. I am enough. Don't say that about me and my son. I love you. I believe the Apostle John expresses this very sentiment when he writes to us through the Holy Spirit. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Right? He says, I don't, I don't want you guys all running amok and sinning and grieving God and messing up your lives. Very next breath. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. <laughs> John's saying, God doesn't want you to sin. I don't want you to sin. But listen, when you sin, As James says, we all stumble in many ways. God would have you remember you have an advocate. You have a mighty, almighty defender. You have an all-powerful helper with your heavenly Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Indeed, he is your righteousness. When you fail, he is your righteousness. When you have a great day, he is your righteousness. He is, he is, not will be or might be. He is the propitiation for your sins. He is the one who exhausts and turns away God's judgment. His just wrath at our sins is turned away because of him. And this is John's counsel. This is John, the biblical counselor for sinners. He's saying, when you sin, look at Jesus, our righteousness. 
He never goes away. He never leaves the Father's side being our righteousness. Look at our punishment-bearing Savior given so we would never have to bear our punishment for the sin you just committed. And know you are welcome to your Father's arms at once. Do you know one of Satan's names in Scripture is the accuser of the brethren? Revelation 12 says he accuses us day and night. That's one of his chief roles. They're talking about Christians. He's accusing them day and night. And this is before God's throne, but I think we get an audio feed, don't we? I think we tap into that line and we hear that accuser. He accuses us of our sins, real and false, but there's plenty real. Because if he can't delude us and, and blind us into thinking that we're actually quite fine in ourselves and don't need Jesus' blood, then he seeks to make us hopeless and miserable and useless by accusing and condemning us for our sins and weaknesses. And Luther writes about this in his commentary on Galatians. He says he struggles with this. He says he knows from experience how powerful this foe is and, and how hard it is every day to believe. I just find that so freeing. Martin Luther, post-12 thesis nailed, post-enlightened by the Holy Spirit about the righteousness of God being his, he says, I still struggle with this every day. And, and he, so to speak, he... he gives a comment, a narration of these accusations and, and the response he's learned in his battles. It's very good medicine for the tormented conscience. He says, when the devil accuses us and says, you are a sinner, therefore you are damned. He says, I remember that Christ died for sinners. And he says, because you say that I'm a sinner, therefore I shall be righteous and be saved. He remembers that Christ didn't come for the healthy, but the sick. And he says, oh, you said I'm sick? That's exactly who Christ came for. No, says the devil. You will be damned. Luther says, no, for I take refuge in Christ, who has given himself for my sins Therefore, Satan, you will not prevail against me as you try to frighten me by showing me the magnitude of my sins and to plunge me into anguish, loss of faith, despair, hatred, contempt of God, and blasphemy. He's going to, Satan is trying to make him hate God by making him see God as a tyrant and a judge, merciless, condemning. But he says, in fact, when you say that I'm a sinner, you provide me with armor and weapons against yourself. Because Christ only died for sinners, but Christ died for sinners. So that I may slit your throat with your own sword and trample you underfoot. You yourself are preaching the glory of God to me, for you are reminding me, a miserable and condemned sinner of the fatherly love of God who so loved the world that he gave his only son. You are reminding me of the blessing of Christ, my Redeemer. On his shoulders, not mine, lie all my sins. For, and he quotes Isaiah, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, and for the transgression of his people he was stricken. Therefore, when you say that I'm a sinner, you do not frighten me, but you bring me immense consolation. Because Christ only came for sinners. And then Luther goes on. He goes on to explain how imperative it is that when we're accused like this, we hold up not ourselves to defend ourselves, but we hold up Jesus Christ and not try to do battle with our conscience on our own. For we'll end up either raising up our own self-righteousness, which always eventually breaks, and which will never stand it will never stand in God's courtroom. It's, it's not just that it's 
bad for you to feel self-righteous as a defense, it will never stand in God's court. Or, as you hold up yourself, more likely you, you begin to despair as you feel the magnitude of your, your missteps. And as he accuses more and more, you feel more and more despair and condemnation. And that doesn't honor Christ either because you're not allowing him to be what he is, a sin bearer. You're bearing your sin. You're bearing the penalty and you're not letting him do what he came to do. What he came to do for you. This idea has really helped me with something that I've heard from others before. One theologian writes it like this. The only sin you can defeat is a defeated sin. The only way to defeat it is to see it as a punished sin, a covered sin. Listen, he's not saying don't memorize verses, don't have accountability partners, don't, you know, try to make strides, don't go to recovery groups. He's not saying any of that stuff. He's saying at the core, the engine room, the coal in the tank of the ship has to be this. That you, in the face of your failure and Satan's accusations, you say this is covered with blood. He goes on to say, this is the mystery of the Christian life, fighting as a justified sinner. My sins, all of them, were covered by Jesus. And this is John Piper. This is how he fights. He says, therefore, when I make war on them, I know they are already defeated, covered, punished. And those are the only ones that I can get any victory over if I turn this around and begin to think, now, now there are some sins. I'm going to go attack them and defeat them so that God will accept me. He says when he does that, he's hung himself. He says when I do that, I'm dead in the water. Getting right with God on the basis of Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, To the glory of God alone, learned about from the Bible alone, is biblical truth. And then, when you are standing right with God by faith alone in what Christ has done, then you make war on your sin. That is, that war on your sin is fruit and evidence that you are right with God. It's not the way you get right with God. So, brothers and sisters, you have sin problems, I have sin problems. I do today, I will tomorrow, we will this week. We will struggle with our sins. Some of them we see, some of them we don't. Some of them we feel okay about talking about. Some of them we feel so ashamed about because we would never want people to think about this about us. God says, well, sin is shameful. All of it. You can, you can count on that. But count on this. I bore it all for you. What you're struggling with right now, what you did yesterday, what you will do tomorrow, I bore it already. I bore the shame. I was punished for it. It is punished. It is covered. Yes, we don't hate, fight our sin as we should. That, that's more sin, right? The real battle, this will go on until we are dead or until we're transformed into Christ at the second coming. But God would ask you, and he would ask me right now, will you take the step of faith today to look at your sin problem in the eye and say, I have redemption, the forgiveness of my sins. Will you look at Satan and sin, those bullies who seek to intimidate and seduce you, with condemnation, and say, my God has brought a nuclear bomb to your gunfight. The almighty and all-powerful, eternally sufficient blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has paid for all of my sins. Will you take him today 
either for the first time by the Holy Spirit's power. May you even be able to take him by faith for the first time for your sins forever or for the 8,000th time. Take him as your sin bearer. Rest in his work. Rest in his sufficiency. Give him the glory he deserves. Even in those areas where you're still in this moment struggling and afraid. Where else are you going to go? What else are your plans with your sin battles? What are you going to... You're going to beat him and then come into God's place and say, look, I fixed this. Take a breather, Jesus. You have nowhere else to go. We have no other option. We only have this righteousness or we don't have any. And we have it. We have it. It's all we have. I am such a mess. More than you guys know. I came unglued this morning. I felt so condemned. Some of this was simple weakness, forgetfulness, but some of it was sin. I could have worked harder. I could have done better. I mean, I really think that. I don't know the full score as God does, but that's what I think. And I just... So I'm not saying that to draw attention to myself. I'm saying it to maybe say to you guys, I get it. I'm preaching this to you. I'm a pastor. I get it. We are a mess. Anger, lust, jealousy, hypocrisy. It isn't love. It's offensive to God. It's bad. He's covered it all. All of it. And he wants us to rejoice in that and to hope in that. And that gives him glory, gives us rest. That's the Christian life. Let's pray. Lord, may you be seen. Take the sponge through your Holy Spirit. Wash away anything I said that you don't want said. But everything that you do want seen and heard from this message, make it stick. May you be lifted up and glorified. And may we find rest and joy in you. May we sense your nearness in Jesus. May we climb up into your lap again and again and again through him and never stay away from you. May we come to you all the more when we're struggling with shame and sin, knowing that Jesus has taken it and he's the only help we have. May our sin even drive us further into you, Lord, as we see it in light of your mercy and your grace. In Jesus' name we pray.